Don, we if we're gonna do a podcast, I think we have to play the the sound the, our song first, right? Go for so, it. All right. So this is uh, for those uh, who are uh, attending today, who are actual um, listeners or might have uh, heard us uh, talk a little bit before. We always have an intro song. So uh, trying to do the same thing here for go to webinar. Um, so uh, let's we practice this a couple times. I think it'll work. I think it'll. <laughs> Hello? 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 Is this Ben? This is how, that's how we roll, right? Right there. That's how we start every one of these episodes. It was a little bit of, a little bit of Neil Young. Um, Don, Don and I, for, um, for those who are new to the show, um, we are, we're, we like, we like to rock and roll. Um, and, uh, we settled way, way, way back when we started this podcast on, uh, on some Neil Young, um, cause we were figuring, you know, you listen to other podcasts and there's some intro music, what would be super cool. And, uh, we took a, a few seconds of, uh, uh, Hey, Hey, my, my, uh, into the black. And when we're done at the end, we're going to play a little bit of an outro, uh, as well. So, yeah. Um, for, I mean, first of all, thanks to, to Afi, to um, Alexis and Donna and Sanjay and Sarah for inviting us to do this today. It's, it's kind of a cool thing. We, um, every couple of weeks, we do a podcast called Food Safety Talk, and um, Don and I get um, on Skype and talk about food safety topics of the day. And um, we, don't, we don't often just focus kind of like on one big topic. And so when, when the folks at AFI approached us um, and, uh, and we're, we're fans of, of AFI and, and a lot of things that, that, that they do around food safety, when, when they approached us and said, hey, can you uh, walk through our website, maybe talk about frozen foods, um, provide some, some insight about whatever we might know about, about this stuff and, and sort of do a different type of a webinar, um, Don and I really uh, uh, jumped at the chance. So, um, so again, thanks for, for the invite and making time for us today. For those of you who are listening, not uh, in real time, um, uh, you'll, you either stumbled across this on the AFI website um, or it's on the part of our Food Safety Talk regular podcast. Um, and if you're coming to this from the regular podcast, go check out um, AFI. Um, that's A-A-F-F-I, not A-A. I, I stuttered there. A-F-F-I. Um, and the website we're going to talk about is A-F-F-I foodsafety.org. That's good. So, so I, you know, Ben, I have a couple of observations just based on what we've heard so far. The fir first thing was when you, when, when uh, Dr. Donna Guerin introduced us, did her voice sound at all familiar? Like, have you heard that voice before? It's, I just had a funny feeling I, I'd heard it before. I feel like she maybe has like listened and sent us something before. She okay. might be I, like a, maybe a past contributor. I don't know. I don't know. She, okay. she has a, a very distinct voice. <laughs> that she does. Um, and the other thing is I, I was really struck by your, uh, your bio um, that you do quote reality-based research. And I, I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting because what we do is we do computer simulations. So in a way, like we do non-reality-based research in my life. Right. So it's another way that we have complementary skills it's true it's true and i so that that reality-based research so i don't know every once in a while i like think about how people are going to introduce me and i try to come up with like words that when you hear like 10 or 20 times that you're not embarrassed and you also kind of like want it to roll quickly to get into the content 
And so I've been using that bio for a few years now. And I was like, how, what's the best way to describe what I do? What's the, what, like, I, I, I do things that are kind of like, if you're on the outside, it's a little bit creepy because I am really interested in what people do and what they do in real life, not what they say they do. Um, and so it's like, you know what, why don't I just call this like reality? And it was like around the time that, um, uh, that I, you know, the bachelor was really hot and survivor and reality TV shows. And I don't know if you're familiar with, um, there's a, there was another reality show that the guys gone on to other things. Um, the apprentice. Um, so these reality shows were, were something that I was like really like interested in, uh, and like, Oh, what people are doing. So I have created maybe a whole, whole niche, uh, um, area of food safety research. And so I was like, yeah, let's, let's call it reality based. And I also, um, uh, Donna, Donna Guerin mentioned, uh, in my bio, cause I, I wrote it that I got, I kind of fell in love with the world of, uh, disease and, and science related to disease because I watched the movie, the classic cable movie. Um, and I say that with Richard fingers, um, air quotes, uh, uh, outbreak. Um, cause, uh, I, it really was one of the things that got me into this world. I, there's, there's like a, a monkey related disease and, uh, um, Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo and Kevin Spacey and Cuba Gooding Jr. They all investigate this outbreak and they're part of CDC. And that movie was like, man, I wish I could do, uh, I, I could get interested in disease. Um, and so I, I ended up going to college for biology and uh, disease stuff. And now here I am talking about disease on, on the internet. Cool. We should we should mention what we're doing. So when we do a podcast, um, usually uh, we both talk, uh, and then uh, I sort of run the Safari browser, which where we we collect links um, to to share with people later on the uh, in our show notes. And while anybody was paying attention, saw while you were talking about Richard Fingers, I was quickly googling Richard Fingers, um, but I didn't find anything that would be appropriate. <laughs> To share. Probably best. So, um, so I close that window rather quickly. Um, the other thing I want to mention: so when we, when when Affy first reached out to us to talk about uh, their Affy Food Safety Zone, um, one of the things that struck me and, and and Donna just reminded us about this is that this is a a service that is developed with the resources of Affy. But one of the problems with many services like this is that they are 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 only allowed or only given access to people that are members of the association. And one of the great things about affifoodsafety.org is that it's open to anybody, members, non-members, the general public. I mean, anybody who wants to can go on this website and find stuff. So anyway, um, with that as a prelude, Ben, uh, I know that you've um, done a lot of preparation for this podcast, much as you do for all of our podcasts. And you have uh, some things on this affifoodsafety.org website that you want to talk about. It's true. I would actually say, just to characterize this correctly, I have done more preparation <laughs> for this than website. Usual. Yeah, for this website that we're posting for this podcast than usual, because <laughs> I usually just come out and talk and and get my first like thoughts. Anyway, I have there's some things that are that I want us to like chat about, um, mm -hmm. and um, and really sort of. Uh, dive into um, and get your take on stuff. And, and we'll start. There's, there are like four resources that I really like. Um, not like that. I like the other ones, but four that are kind of like a good, um, a good starting point for us. So if you, Don, can take us to, um, let's start with, um, Let's start with the uh, document that I sent you um, that is called AFI uh, Blanching Study. 
Okay, sure. That's that's uh, not not the one uh, not the one that I had uh, up on my right. screen. So I will I will well, quickly. What did will, you have oh, up on your? Oh, I, I well now I'm showing people the the hey hey my my uh, which is not what I intended. So this folks this is how the podcast get made. So um, there we go. Affy Food Safety Zone. Um, uh, right. So let's go to uh, yeah, considerations for validation of cooking uh, instructions. Uh, right. Okay, well, let's do that one. Let's yes. So oh, this uh, one. What did you want? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, Affy Blanching Study. Sorry. One thing. Affy Blanching Study. So this one's okay. found in. Um, uh, uh, it's in the section. If if people were to click on the process validation section, there's a PDF that that says Affy Blanching Study. And so let's just pretend that that you have clicked on that, um, and so um, in process validation, and then bring up the actual. Um, uh, PDF. Got it. Go. I've got the PDF open. So people are looking at it now. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is, this is really, really cool. We talked a little bit in our last podcast about this, um, this paper, but I want to, I want to highlight it, um, a, a little more. This is, um, as, as you mentioned, this is some work that was done by, um, Affy. We, you and I, um, were, were involved in the, um, sort of a little bit of the design um, and, and selection of this as part of the scientific advisory um, council or group uh, for AFI. Um, but th this, this idea, uh, the idea was that there wasn't a lot of data out there on whether the process of blanching was which which is there and and so for the for the AFI members that are here they, they would all probably know this but it's it, the process of blanching is there to inactivate enzymes and it's there from an enzyme inactivation standpoint from a quality uh, situation so we, we don't inactivate any of the enzymes before we freeze vegetables um, certain you know certain frozen foods we're going to end up with um, a lower quality product it may get mushy we may have some off flavors it may turn into um, you know some some off colors, what 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 have you, and so so we for you know for a long time um, we've been blanching frozen foods uh, to control for quality. But the real question came out was: Is this process um, equally um, uh, effective at reducing uh, pathogens of concern that we might see um, in? Um, in, in frozen foods. Um, and, and the reason being like, um, and, and I'll give you like a little anecdote uh, for this where I kind of got interested in this area. One of the things when my kids were young, my, my oldest, my youngest kid was, was an infant actually. Um, we go to our pediatrician and our pediatrician as part of our like, you know, uh, annual checkup checkup as my, my kids started growing teeth said, you know what a good thing for, a kid to do while they're teething is, is to chew on frozen vegetables and to chew on, um, this, this product. And, you know, it's cool. They might get some nutrients out of it. Um, it's, you know, probably less of a, um, a potential choking hazard than if you gave them like a big piece of ice or, or whatever. And it got me, um, got my sort of food safety, um, radar up because it became something where it was like, yeah, but from, from what I know about um, frozen vegetables, it's not a food that we treat as 
ready to eat. And so I knew that they were, I knew that the product was blanched, but what was missing was this type of research, which is, okay, if we're actually blanching something in different ways, what does it mean from a, from a pathogen um, reduction standpoint? So uh, I, I, I like this. I really like this document. I like um, from a from AFI standpoint, I think it's cool that this is shared. Um, it's something that um, that's made available for for um, for anybody to go check it out. Because um, it, one of the things that um, that I run into as I, I help the industry or um, regulators on on certain things is you and I have access to um, academic journals, but not everybody does. So this gives us, it's like right, right there. Here is um, a, uh, a, a scientific study done um, in a really systematic way that, that gives us, demonstrates what happens to listeria and salmonella during water and steam blanching. What, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's great that AFI is leading the way and doing this kind of research um, because it's and it's not going to benefit. I mean, it's going to it's going to benefit everybody, right? Like it, it helps gives you useful advice, um, you know, or things to think about when when your doctor gives you recommendations for teething for your kids. But this is going to benefit the the entire industry, and I, I really think com with the coming. Uh, or ongoing implementation of the Food Safety Modernization Act, we are going to see a need for more and more of this type of thing. And 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 individual companies may go and do it, but but increasingly, you know, we're going to need things that that work across an industry. I mean, for just as a un, un, semi-related example, I'm working with a food company right now that's uh, developing. Uh, uh, a, a, we're working on a manuscript that's basically going to show the effectiveness of their process for controlling pathogens in their product. And it's, it's great. And it will hopefully benefit other people in the industry, but by virtue of the fact that it's only a single company doing it, it's, it's really tailored to that company's individual needs. And so the fact that, that AFI can put together this consortium of people across the frozen food industry and develop documents like this that benefit everyone. I think that's just, again, it just shows an, an example of, uh, you know, how they're, how they're helping improve food safety. Uh, really across the industry. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, I think that um, it, it, you and I on, on the podcast have talked about other industries and, and sometimes you've got a situation where um, an industry like, uh, or individual companies kind of like ignore something, like the more we know about it, the more that we either have to do about it or may uncover some issues that we're not really sure how to handle. And I, I point to um, to where um, the frozen food industry is right now in trying to stay ahead of that. And, and research like this, funding research like this is, is a really, really key um, example of, of being proactive. Um, and it's not unlike an, another group that, um, you know, that's not frozen foods, but I think we've talked about quite a bit um, over the six or seven years that we've done the, the podcast, the almond industry, doing a similar situation where they, um, that group had um, uh, cause for concern. Uh, raw almonds have been linked to um, a few, one large, really large salmonella outbreak um, and a, a couple of minor ones. Um, and really, be in response, turn that industry on its head, but starting with, okay, what don't, what don't we know? What do we know? And this, to me, um, the, that, that document is, is really the start, um, the start of this. And really this, this entire, um, 
uh, afifoodsafety.org website pulls it pulls it all together. Yeah, you know the other thing too is while we're while we're talking here, uh, Donna is providing us. Uh, Doctor Donna Garen is providing us with feedback um, in the background, and she said one of the things that she pointed out is this. The, and the page that I have up right now that you can see on the webinar uh, is uh, Listeria is the Listeria Control Program uh, page, and uh, you wouldn't know it from looking at the top of this page, but. Uh, as Donna says in her her text message to me, there's over a hundred recommendations for control. And just just to give you some idea of that, I'm just going to slowly scroll down this page. And and I don't don't know if you can see, but up in the upper right hand corner, there's a little scroll bar, and it just it just goes and goes and goes. And all of this information um, is just a tremendous resource that was that that, that AFI has pulled together for its members and honestly for anybody who is concerned. It's not this is not unique. Some of this is specific to frozen foods, but you know a lot of it is is not. It just has to do with listeria control generally. And here it is, all in one place, all for free, all developed by AFI. So it's really um, you know, and it just like I said, it just keeps going and going and going. So tremendous, tremendous resource um, for folks in the food industry. Yeah. And let's, so this is a good, it's a good website for us to settle on here for a second. So um, one of the things that I really like about, you know, one of the things that, that Donna and her team had asked us to do is sort of go through the, the website and, and this, um, the, these, this control program is a uh, uh, page is a good, good spot for us to probably spend a bunch of time on. Um, I, I, I really, really like the fact that we've got not just there's not just one answer. So if you see, I, I'm um, Don. I'm going to tell you on the left hand <laughs> side. You can't see this. I want you to t put your your mouse in a circle over the Listeria control program with those six things. Where we've got environmental yep. monitoring, yep. perfect. Sanitation controls, hygienic design, process validation, good manufacturing practices, hy hygienic zoning, um, and freezer management. I, I think the thing that I've been most impressed about. Um, the the AFI approach is that there's no there's no magic bullet here. Mm. Um, there, this you mean we're not just going to irradiate everything? <laughs> right, right. We're not going to just irradiate everything. We're we're not. We're also not going to say, um, hey, uh, the big the biggest answer is like just get every consumer to to like cook it correctly or handle it correctly. And that, although that's part of it, and we're going to get into this um, with another one of the documents that that's there in. Um, in validation, uh, in, in the process validation, but but it's it, it's a real it's a real holistic look at this, and I know that people get kind of uncomfortable about that that term. It's I, I see it as everything that happens in um, from sourcing all the way through to consumer. There is a chance for the industry to address risks and do so whether it's in creating a sanitation team. And impressing the whys on why it's important to do um, uh, environmental um, sanitation, or looking at um, working with uh, the the group that controls label and marketing to make sure that that we're getting the right information to consumers, all the way back to ensuring that we're managing um, freezers correctly. It's it's a really like. Um, uh, integrated approach, and and one one of the things, and in, in, um, I'm going to jump a little bit off, uh, um, you know, off of our script uh, here, or not script, but our, our plans here, and, and talk a little bit about, about what Donna and and her team and I have talked about when it comes to consumer um, messages. The the thing that I've been really like most um, 
I don't know, heartened about is that the the approach from AFI to um, connect with their members is to say, don't just label this. Like, we really need to look at an entire social marketing approach to food safety. It's it's having having validated cooking instructions is one of it is one of the steps. Having messaging that this this product is not ready to eat and, re- and requires a cook step is another piece. Having information that's shared at point of service is another piece. Being able to engage with partners uh, around this. So it's not just the industry that's pushing this information out is another piece. And I think that that's that like all of that sort of spells out how they've approached this entire control control program. And and I I think like uh, thinking back to some of the other like comparing to other examples that we've seen um, and we've talked about good examples and bad examples in other industries on on our podcast. But um, one of the um, I'll, I'll call out uh, um, an example of uh, uh, of a company that that had had a um, a company that was making um, uh, coffee uh, roasting coffee that moved into cold brew coffee um, and did so without sort of the forethought of like the difference in that product right like you know, they were creating something that um, that they didn't have to worry about. Um, Clostridium botulinum, and then they made a different type of product that they weren't worried. They weren't thinking about pH and this um, uh, anaerobic environment, and and moved forward into a product that ended up getting recalled. And you and I had, uh, and we'll link to this in a uh, from a previous podcast. I think the name of the company was Death Wish um, Coffee, um, which is one of the greatest names for a, a company that's been involved in a recall for botulism uh, reasons. But the, the CEO of the company did uh, did another podcast, not our podcast, where he talked about this situation and said something, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but basically said, you know, he didn't have a food scientist on on staff when he was making these decisions. Um, they Someone had said, you know, you make this really great product. Have you ever thought making it cold brew? Um, oh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that, but without thinking about the other implications and and, and the when we look at something like a listeria, listeria control program and what AFI sort of putting forward, I think they really are promoting to their members, promoting to non-members, promoting anybody in the in the frozen food industry that if you're going to make product decisions, you, you probably need to have a, an eye on what this means for listeria and what this means for um, you know, potentially other pathogens, but, you know, you and I have jumped, jumped into this right at the start. Listeria is the one that, that I think it becomes the, um, uh, in our, you know, in our minds first because, um, of, you know, post blanching contamination potential because the environment is, is great for listeria harborage and, and growth and because of how the product might be might be handled. Um, but, but I think it, it like, like what, what AFI's really done here is said, okay, if you're thinking about products in this sector, if you're making these products, come here and think about these like over hundred controls, which ones are these are applicable? What are you doing? And done a situation where maybe they're, they're the first place of having a, um, food safety person on board to look at, um, like all these, all these questions where, where a company, um, you know, like, like Deathwish, who, who's now moved back into this, this realm by consulting, um, food scientists, but maybe did that without, um, 
you know, without thinking about it first. Yeah, I think that's 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 a it's a really uh, that's a really good point. So um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so Deathwish Coffee. Um, you should get you should get you should get uh, you should have you should have food safety people on staff. I think there's probably some people at at Chipotle that uh, should have learned that same lesson and maybe maybe have finally. <laughs> right, right, yeah, absolutely. And um, all right, so let's move let's move a little bit. And I'm going to get you to um, pull up a document that I sent you, another PDF. So let's see how this works for you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's go to the consumer, the um, uh, cons- considerations, considerations for validation. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a little, it's a little tricky because you sent these to me um, in um, in the text. You, text- you sent me in a text message, but then you can't open PDFs from a text message easily. But anyway, I got it open. So go, go for you're, it. You're the man. You're the man. Um, all right. So um, I want you to. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. And, and again, I, th- I think, and this is my area. So I mentioned about reality research. This is something that, and it's, I mean, it's your area too as well, Tom, but I, I think one of the things that um, as I become uh, more close to investigating um, messaging around frozen foods, this is an area that I, that's become sort of near and dear to my, my heart. And, um, uh, a while ago, um, I, I was, uh, Don had asked me to, to speak at, um, AFI's, um, food safety, uh, education conference in San Diego last month. Um, and I spent a bunch of time thinking about what my messages were and what I wanted to share, um, in, in this area. And one of the things that, um, that, that became really important to me as I was trying to find, um, information just like a consumer was what should I tell consumers to cook their frozen vegetables to or frozen foods to? And it is a, um, it's a difficult question to, to answer. And especially if you start like Googling this, you find a bunch of stuff and I'm going to, going to like save Dawn from Googling this, uh, on, you know, on time. Uh, but basically what, what you can find is, um, somewhere between 135 degrees, 165 degrees until thoroughly cooked until steaming hot, um, or, um, it, you know, check the manufacturer's directions. And that provides a really interesting space for us because it's different from other foods that are that are out there, at least from a message standpoint. Because if we look at um, uh, uh, poultry, for example, um, we have a really great um, and you did an awesome job pulling this up, Don, knowing that uh-huh. I was going to go here. We have a really great um, uh, history on saying, you know what, we arrived at 165 degrees Fahrenheit as like an, uh, an easy, simple, if we get here, we're going to get an, an instant kill, seven log reduction of salmonella and take care of a bunch of uh, a, a, a bunch of Campylobacter um, at the same time. But as, as you're scrolling through this this report, there's like, um, you know, pages and pages and pages of science that arrived at that um, at, at that number. And, and right now, I think we lack that number. And I don't even know, and this is the, like, what you and I get to have fun talking about from an academic standpoint, I don't even know if, if one number is the right thing. I know that we we try to distill it down to one succinct number for all these other foods, and right now, when it comes to frozen vegetables explicitly, that's missing in in those charts. Um, if we go to foodsafety.gov or um, uh, the um, 
Partnership for Food Safety Education, the core four messages around cook, chill, clean, and sep uh, separate in the cook area, we, we're just missing that that message. And and what what I like about the document, um, if you want to click back over to the to that uh, PDF here, Don. What I like about the document from considerations for validation of cooking instructions is it is it basically outlines how to develop the, the right cooking instruction and define what it is your um, you as a as a manufacturer of these products should be focusing on for the right uh, to, to pick the right endpoint temperature. And so it, it gives with with just, you know, a lot of um, nice, succinct uh, and scroll down to page. Uh, exactly. Thank you. To page four. It gives you exactly how to how to do this, how to establish what the minimum inter internal temperature um, is, uh, should be. Um, and says really kind of goes through here are things that you need to think about and. And maybe at one point we get to like, okay, this is good for my specific product. And maybe at one point we say, um, you know, 155 is the right is the right answer. I don't know if we're if we're ever going to get there, or even like I said, if, if that's the right place to go. But in the absence of that, this gives a really good set of steps to say, um, how would I know if my cooking instructions that we want to give people for best quality are also going to result in the safest possible product? Well, and, you know, and as you were talking, uh, so, of course, I, I thought about that NACMIF document that I was showing just a minute ago, and, and this is kind of where I really first began to think about some of these issues in, in earnest was on this, I, and I was part of this NACMIF committee, and, and it really occurred to me that, the, I, that how you go about validating cooking directions was something that, that we, the industry hadn't really thought about. I mean, there were, of course, internal procedures for how a given company would validate their cooking directions, but often those directions were validated for quality, not for safety, and so the fact that we have this NACMIF document, the fact that we have these, this advice from from is all really important. But I think the other thing, and this is for regular listeners to the podcast, they'll recognize this, this refrain, is ultimately there's it's a decision about risk assessment and risk management. And this this came up, so we're, we're doing some work right now, um, what I like to call the uh, Ben Chapman microwave berry experiments, the Ben Chapman memorial right. microwave yeah. berry experiments, because we've talked on the podcast about that you like uh, to eat frozen berries, and uh, but you're also worried about norovirus or hepatitis A, and so you have this procedure for how you microwave berries, and we're actually going and validating uh, or we're developing uh, kinetics for bacteriophage MS2, which we're using as a norovirus surrogate, and we're doing some experiments in the laboratory, which which basically allow us to be able to figure out, okay, what would, if you, if you had cooking directions for berries, and those cooking directions were around safety, what would they look like to give you some measure of assurance of, of risk reduction for uh, norovirus or hepatitis A? Again, assuming that you could, you have the data to translate the the bacteriophage MS2 kinetics into something that made that made sense for uh, uh, for, for for norovirus or Hep A. And and it, and ultimately, some risk manager somewhere is going to have to make a decision. And this, this this was interesting as I was talking about this research a little bit at a food safety advisory board meeting for a company whose who's board that I, that I serve on. And one of the other academics in the audience said, well, what would you tell me would be the recommendation for microwaving berries? And my answer was, of course, I can't tell you yet. 
um, because we don't have the full set of kinetics. But even after we do, really, risk assessment is never going to tell you what to do. Risk assessment is going to say, if you do X, you'll get this reduction in risk. If you do Y, you'll get this other reduction in risk. But ultimately, it's the job of the risk managers to decide, okay, what is the level of assurance that we want to provide to our customers in our cooking directions. And then, and then somebody needs to make that decision. But it's not, but if that's going to be a policy decision, a corporate policy decision, uh, based on hopefully the best available science. And so, but, but, you know, the fact that we're even talking about validating cooking directions for consumers is, is so important because this is a, this is a relatively new area. And it's, it's great that people like you, uh, are doing that kind of research that you have kitchens where you can you can actually ha- invite real people in and, and have them prepare foods as they would prepare them in the real world. Um, uh, because ultimately, it's going to take data like that. It's going to take data coming like coming out of labs like mine that are you know getting D values and Z values, and it's going to take both of us partnering together with risk managers uh, in food companies to figure out okay, well this is what level this is what we think the risk is coming in. This is the level of risk that we want to provide to our assurance that we want to provide to our customers, and therefore we're going to come up with these recommendations. And of course, there's going to be back and forth because you have to, you don't want to, I mean, you could make stuff be, you know, a quote unquote, completely safe, but you know, guess what? That's also going to result in a product that might be unpalatable. And so finding that fine line, which may or may not be a fine line between how do you ensure a quality product for people, but at the same time, an appropriate uh, level of risk. And, and, and this is, this is, this is hard for many products, but it's especially hard you know, right now talking about poultry is these par cooked products that are not fully cooked that look fully cooked. And that's, that's a whole other podcast to talk about that. But anyway, this is, you know, this is, this is an example of the kind of cutting edge stuff that AFI is doing. And it's true. It's true. It's tremendous that they are, again, just, I'm blown away by the fact that they are putting this resource on their website and they're making it available to, for free to anybody who wants to use it. I mean, these, and these are, these are unique to uh, frozen foods, but guess what? Even if you didn't have a frozen food and you want wanted to develop a, 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 a best practice or you wanted to develop a validation method for your product, this would be a great place to start. You could do a whole lot worse than starting with, with this information here. So anyway, um, you know, but kudos to AFI for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you made me think of where I probably got introduced to this, um, this area was um, an outbreak uh, back in 2007 of uh, salmonella um, and uh, serotype I45 12 colon I um, minus asterisk. Um, oh yeah, that's I, I, that's your I favorite salmonella, right? I comma 12 colon I colon dash asterisk. That's Could, everybody knows that. Everybody, everybody knows that. Uh, this, <laughs> I think that's the episode title. <laughs> I think that's right there. We said we nailed it. Um, but this was an outbreak of. Wait, Donna um, said you want a bell. There. there, there you go. Donna got a bell. Um, this is an outbreak that that I really like. This was soon after we started Barfblog, um, and uh, we were we were able instead of like so came at a time where we could self-publish stuff with pictures and videos and not like try to supplant a little bit of the um, you know, way that news kind of spread around. And um, this, this outbreak was, uh, I mean, uh, 400 illnesses from 41 states. Um, median age of patients was 20 years uh, old. 50% of the females were, or patients were females. Um, and the outbreak was linked to undercooking um, a, a frozen pot pie. And the there was a quote that came out, and I can't, I, I won't, um, I won't uh, 
I'll protect the innocent a little bit, mainly because I can't remember who it was, but there was someone associated with one of the companies that, um, th- that, uh, was interviewed in the new, let's say New York times or USA today. Cause this is a big, this was a big outbreak that made a lot of, um, uh, uh, gotten a lot of, att- received a lot of attention that said, um, the risk factor for getting sick for this product was really how well consumers followed our instructions. Not, not that there was salmonella in it in the first place, not like really understanding the validation or, or talking about the validation, but it was like a really like, um, I, I don't know. I, I thought just a, a really scathing kind of quote that was like, we were, if, if just, if consumers could just follow what we told them to do, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get sick. And, um, we'll, we'll see if we can find this. Like, I don't have it on the fly, but, um, we did a little bit of, um, like consumer reality research with, uh, you know, replicate of one, uh, or two on barf blog, following the, um, the instructions that were on, um, the packaging and were not able to actually get the product above, um, you know, definitely not a hundred uh, above 165, um, degrees, but, um, had trouble getting it, um, to an area where we would expect to have uh, a bunch of law reduction log reductions um and so i just found the um uh you know found the link um and uh this is uh something that our that our colleague doug said um a short version the cooking instructions for me one trial failed to yield a safe internal temperature of 165 the pie only got to 148 um uh, fahrenheit and so what's really nice about these validated cooking instructions um is and the, um this was uh i'm going to send you the link for this don it was actually the um cooking the poop out of pot pies um and uh it was um you kind of demonstrated that you have to look at how consumers are going to handle this. We have to look at variability in microwaves. We don't probably now want people microwaving this product um, at all, or if they, because of cold spots, but that kind of messaging just wasn't there 10 years ago. And I would say that from my experience working with consumers a lot over the last 10 plus years, since this, um, since this outbreak, our messages may have changed, but I, I still believe that there is a really strong perception with some of these convenience foods that look like they're ready to eat, um, that that look like they can just be reheated. There is a perception within the consumer world that that they can just you know just warm it up, get it to whatever temperature I'm comfortable with, and um, to be able to to eat it, not get it to a safe uh, internal temperature. So I yeah, really it's, applaud. It's a pie, Ben. It's a cooked pie. Why would, I, why would I need to cook it? It's a cook. You can look at it and you can see that it's a literally it's a cooked pie. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this is this is a huge this is a huge problem. And again, it comes back to that point where you 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 want the consumer to have a good experience. Right. And you don't want them to eat a pie that's been burnt to a crisp. But of course, if you're going to put raw poultry or partially cooked poultry in that pie, um, you also have to worry about them getting food poisoning because that would also be part of not having a good experience. Right. And so figuring that out and designing your 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 process and designing your cooking directions to work in a way. And that's the other thing too. I mean, and you alluded to this, it's like, number one, the company blamed the consumer, which is never the right thing to do. And number two, they blamed the consumer for not following the directions. But yet when, when 
educated food safety professionals tried to follow the directions, they also were not successful in achieving that that uh, that theoretical endpoint temperature. So you know, there's something broken here, right? And and it, and it's and it's hard in ovens, in conventional ovens, but it's even harder in microwaves because you don't always know the wattage. Like uh, this came up the other day. My wife was we were talking about cooking something in the wattage of the oven, and I'm like looking around for the oven, like the wattage should be here. This is a prominent information. Well, it turns out it was right on the front panel of the oven. It wasn't on the door. It wasn't in an obscure place, but it was almost so obvious where it was that I didn't see it. Right. And right, then, right. And then again, okay, so now I know my oven's 1200 Watts. Well, okay. So how am I going to use that um, in, in whatever food safety decision I'm going to make? Well, that's a, that's a, a, an entirely other question that, that would take again, uh, a long time to, to, to figure it out. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, I want to, I'd send you another link to, um, to something I, I just want to talk about um, really quickly. And it's something that I think is special about the frozen food industry and the dried food industry. Um, so this is a link that, so um, you know, probably many, um, many folks that are listening live today um, know about this one. Um, and some of our um, listeners who are just regular listeners of the podcast may have heard about it, but there's an outbreak back in uh, 2013, E. coli O121 linked to farm rich brand frozen food products. And this is from um, <clears throat> CDC's website. Um, I, I like, so we've got an, we've got an outbreak that doesn't look um, particularly um, exciting. If we click on the, um, uh, I want, Don, I want you to click on the uh, epigraph. And I'm going to click on the epigraph. <laughs> I want you to click on that epigraph. All I've right. clicked on the epigraph and, and now I'm going to scroll down. down. Yeah, let's see that graph. So this is this there's, outbreak. There's a graph for you, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks. This, this is, this is um, something that, that is changing um, that has changed in the last um, six or seven years as we've, as, as our surveillance systems have gotten better. And as we've continued to um, focus on whole genome sequencing and, and better data sharing really um, from state and federal, federal agencies, the first um, you got, you got to scroll back down, Don. Don't, don't, I know. Don't. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm distracted, Ben. I want to, I want to, yeah. I want to, Load the original page for people, and then I want to keep this page up for you. Just relax, relax. I like it. Good, good, good. Well, I want to start. So, so the first illnesses that were reported were late December 2012. The outbreak um, went all the way through to to mid April, and and this is the this is the thing that I think is really like I, I I think about when it comes to frozen foods. I definitely have frozen foods that are in my freezer that are months old that are maybe even over a year old. Um, and so this, this outbreak and, and outbreaks that we see with the, that I think we can expect to see um, with frozen foods as we go forward, we really have to be aware that our messaging, our information that goes to consumers is not just about like, did you, do you have this product right now? And, and it's different from how we handle more perishable foods on like check your refrigerator, but over time, you know, these foods just aren't going to be there from a quality standpoint. I really could, and I, I don't, but I, it would not surprise me. And I'll, I'll throw my parents under the bus on this because they don't listen to the podcast. It wouldn't surprise me if my mom or my dad um, went to their freezer and found some frozen foods that were four or five years old that they were just like, oh, we don't have anything today to eat. Let's go ahead and, and, and open this up. And then you know, go get a product that had been recalled. This it wouldn't surprise me. 
um, at all. So we have to be really vigilant about how we communicate this stuff as well. Um, and, and back in the, the original, um, if you do click on your, uh, the, the original um, article from CDC, um, they highlight um, in this, um, in, let's see if we can actually get to this, in the um, investigation of the outbreak, um, they say um, some, something in here of people may still have this in their freezer. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's really like that's really key for us, right? Like that's different from other foods. That's where the the frozen food industry um, is is special. Right. Right. Because yeah, the products are around for a long time. Now the the good news is at least with respect to the data that we've seen on at least virus survival, the virus's uh, concentration goes down over time. So the longer you keep it around, the the less likely you are to have it. Um, I don't know how, to what extent that's true with bacterial pathogens, but but it's certainly you know it, it's it's on the one hand it's good um, because it means that the the risk is not increasing, but it's it's bad in that the product, like you said, may be around even years later potentially. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have one more anecdote to share. I'm cognizant sure. of our time. Um, and it goes back. So I want you to go back and click on the, um, go back to the Listeria Control Program tab of the AFI Food Safety Zone website. Um, okay. Back to that list of 100 uh, plus recommendations. So the anecdote that I have to share, and this is, um, I, you know, I think that most of the, the folks that are listening in real time today um, are, are don't fall into this this category, but I think this is where we, you and I have a job to do. Um, the world of um, co- cooperative extension and outreach ha- has a job to do. Um, I, I, and it's, it's around small businesses, uh, people that are starting up, people that make really good food. They may make it uh, from a catering standpoint. They may want to sell refrigerated foods and they're moving into the frozen food sector as a way to um, to Im- impact or increase their, um, you know, their, their business. Um, I have a, a friend and, and colleague at another um, close by college to me, and she um, is someone who does a lot of work with um, nutrition education and um, connecting food systems to healthy eating. And she, she's, been really interested in also food waste. One of the ideas that she, she came up with, and again, I'll protect her identity here, um, but that this idea that she came up with was to take, connect um, farmers in our area here in, in North Carolina who um, are maybe at the end of their season, they're trying to um, extend their, their business a little bit, work with a small business to buy certain products that could be cooked and then frozen. And then sold to individuals um, who maybe like at a at a reduced cost, basically running this as a not for profit organization, um, and doing so not as not as a food business, but trying to connect the the dots. Um, she called me up uh, a while ago to say, "What what do I need to do from a regulatory standpoint? How could I create this this not for profit organization? Can I do it in a?" in a kitchen at a restaurant. How do I, what would I worry about when it comes to, um, to, to inspection and what, what are, what are the risks? So she was really interested in the regular regulatory aspects of this. And, and so I actually, 
um, when when Donna and the AFI team shared this the uh, Food Safety Zone website with us a while ago, um, I followed back up with her and, and sent this information on to her and, and said, this is a really good starting point. And I don't want you to be overwhelmed, but you should be a little bit overwhelmed by this because it's not as simple as I make a really cool product. I'm just going to throw it into a freezer and then I'm going to, I'm going to sell it. It, it to move in from a, you know, I like food to, I'm going to be a food processor means you really need to think about like almost all of these things. It, it's not, not going to be all of them, but but like, how are you going to develop validated cooking instructions? How are you going to look at your facility? What's the kitchen look like? Are you going to do this in a shared use kitchen? Um, if you are going to try and um, use a, a kitchen that, that is being used for a restaurant, what are you going to do for listeria control? Because you're trying to make a different type of product. What kind of equipment are you going to use? Um, how are you going to pack this stuff? What do you get? What kind of packaging are you going to look at? Um, and and really, as I scroll through this, um, and you know, Don, if you scroll down that um, the 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 website a little bit, when you get into things like freezer sanitation, um, is it, it it would be important to create an environmental monitoring monitoring program to know whether you've got some um, some specific risks um, here in your, um, in your facility, all of these types of things are, um, we're, we're really off of this individual's radar. And, and I think that this, this type of package of ref resources may be overwhelming to someone who hadn't been thinking about it, but also gives them a really good starting point to say, whoa, I hadn't thought about this, but let me click through these, these resources on what I should be doing. What are some of the industry best practices? What are some of the things that I that I need to be thinking of that other people in the sector are already doing um, and are and are also wrestling with? And so I, I see this like, and you mentioned being able to make this available not just to AFI members but to everybody is a real service. And I I want um, I want people who are listening to us here to be able to share this kind of stuff um, uh, as well. But but it's it, it's something that becomes a concern um, and the more and more I talk to, to small businesses about just how much they're not aware of how big of a step it is to go into like food manufacturing from someone who just makes a really good pot pie. Yeah. And, you know, related to this, the, the whole idea of like, how do you handle like the, the whole idea of, set of businesses that deal with food waste, right? Like that's where this conversation, this, this specific yeah, right. aspect of the conversation started was food waste. And how do you develop uh, ways to safely handle that food waste? And this is an issue that I think is going to keep coming up again and again, because we're, we are very concerned about food waste. We don't want food to go to waste, but at the same time, um, we don't want people to become sick either. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's kind of a fun and maybe a little bit uh, light but but thoughtful way to end or, or to begin to wrap things up. This is a, I'm, I'm showing you a web page now from uh, this website called Twitter. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Twitter.com. Um, it's a website where people can I'm, share what they think I'm not about. familiar. I'm not familiar. Okay. Um, well, there's a person uh, on Twitter who has a fair, fair number of followers. Uh, she's uh, apparently she's a, an academic, former philosophy professor, um, uh, but she uh, she's in Australia and she says, "I'm worried about hashtag Australia." I had dinner in a hotel restaurant and I asked for a doggy bag to take leftovers to my room. Had to fill out a hectoring little form on food, excuse me, food safety and liability. Uh, hashtag nanny state. 
and uh, I'm working on uh, I'm working on a sneeze here. Um, but basically, what it what it is is there is a food disclaimer notice from the Hilton Hotel Sydney, which basically the person uh, is is asking the person taking the leftovers back to their room to absolve the restaurant of responsibility. And uh, I mean, I, I kind of get why Hilton is doing it, and I'm, I'm a little little. I don't, I don't know uh, Christina Summers, who's the person who tweeted this. Um, but um, you know, it's it's uh, you know that this is this is this is why food safety is hard. This person doesn't want to be bothered with food safety, but you know what? Um, Hilton is doing their very best to share information with the customer so that the customer doesn't give themselves food poisoning. So, uh, you know, it just I guess it just shows that how complicated it, maybe it can be. And of course, you know, read the read the tweet, read the responses. There's a very humorous picture about a spider in Australia that can kill you, um, and people talk about how dangerous Australia is. And, you know, which is again, it's all putting risk in perspective. But but at the same time, I mean, I I, I you know who who will speak for the Hiltons, Ben? Who will speak for the Hiltons? who will speak for the Hiltons? Yeah, I uh, um, it, we we did a project a while ago um, back when I was in grad school, looking at leftover messages and even just arriving on what's the right message to give people. Um, but but if you look at you know so much of what's out there, this is missing. And we I I think one of the the common things that that you and I try to talk about on the podcast is that um, for a really long time, I think our industry has thought a lot of things around food safety when it comes to consumers is just common sense, right? If people just followed their common sense, then, cooking, then no man. one just yeah, no one would get sick. And uh, and it's it's not simple. And in fact, we make a lot of assumptions that people know what to do and handle it um, safely. And so kudos to Hilton, and we'll speak for the Hiltons, but kudos to them to, for saying, um, we'll speak for Paris and all the other Hiltons, um, uh, for saying like, here's, you know, we, we're, we're not going to trust your common sense. And here's some good messages of how you should handle this product. These yeah. Foods. And maybe this, this form is not perfect and maybe we could make it better. Um, but, but definitely, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a good place to start the discussion anyway. So, um, so, uh, by the way, if people have, uh, questions, uh, we, I, one of the things that I really love and we've been able to do more of on the podcast is, is listener feedback and getting questions from listeners. And when we do a webinar like this, we're able to do it in real time. So if you have questions, uh, by all means, please type your questions into the question box um, uh, in the webinar control panel, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them. And if we have uh, any time remaining, we can, we can also handle some uh, listener feedback from previous episodes of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I was I'm, I was like getting ready to queue up the um, the hey hey my my outro um, here, uh, but uh, no, we we're we're definitely uh, we're in here for the for the long haul. We could just and for those who are not familiar with our uh, our podcast, sometimes we go like an hour and a half, and sometimes it's like four hours. Um, Don and I would just talk to each other about food safety stuff without anybody listening, so. Um, it's, <laughs> It's just our our chance to catch up, and we let you in on our on our conversation. Um, and, and, and so, so Ben, just to show you the caliber of the listeners that we have. So this is uh, this is from a uh, a listener, and we we have a, we have code names for all of our listeners. And this is from uh, Southwest Lava, uh, code name Southwest Lava. And uh, this this listener writes, "I have an idea for reheating leftover chicken and uh, meat." Uh, meat and chicken using a microwave that may reduce or eliminate off flavors when microwaved normally. The idea came to me when I had some leftover steak pieces and rice for an unknown reason, for an unknown reason, 
I placed the steak in a glass container first and then piled rice on top of it. This actually heated up the steak pretty evenly and the steak heated up the steak pretty evenly and the steak tasted good, as good as it did the previous day. I believe the penetrating power of the microwave is pretty weak. So I think what happens is the rice heats up first and then the heat is transferred to the meat, warming it up. I'm not sure if this holds true. Let me know your thoughts. So, so thanks uh, for the great question, uh, Mr. Mr. Lava. Um, microwave heating is really an interesting, uh, interesting topic, right? Uh, because microwaving is variable. Now, now, I, as I said to my response to uh, Mr. Lava, you, neither you nor I are microwave engineers, but we know people who are microwave engineers, and they could probably give a much better answer. But, but basically, it's not that microwaves have poor heat penetration. It's just that they tend to penetrate things unevenly. And so you have hot spots and you have cold spots. Now, uh, we've talked before on the podcast uh, about a friend of the show and former uh, guest on the podcast, uh, Merlin Mann. Merlin has a microwave heating tip that what he does is he typically will heat things at 50% power for twice as long. And the idea here is that it, it makes the, the, the maybe prevents the meat from toughening up. Um, and from my point of view, that longer time allows uh, hot spots in the, the meat to dissipate. Um, I think one of the reasons why uh, Mr. Lava's trick might work is that by, by placing the rice over the beef, the rice kind of holds in some of the moisture that might have evaporated from the beef, and that maybe helps to keep it um, moist and tender. Um, of course, if we really wanted to be sure, uh, we'd have to do multiple experiments with uh, meat on top of the rice, meat under the rice, meat uh, with rice around it, um, and then do a multiple, you know, with multiple pieces of beef, and, and multiple times with multiple, um, you know, replicates. But but the basic, the bottom line is what I. The reason why Ben, the reason why I'm sharing this is we have awesome listeners, and they're really smart, and they ask really good questions. We we do, and um, we uh, as we kind of wait for our. Um, uh, webinar folks to, to ask questions. If there are any out there, we can go through um, some more of these because they do keep us on our toes and, and share stuff that we might not have uh, seen before. Um, I'm going to um, give you a link, uh, Don, uh, to talk about here. This comes from um, uh, a follow-up from your talk at the um, Consumer Food Safety Education Conference a few weeks ago. And it was um, an individual who didn't say anything about you can share anything publicly or not. So we're going to just call this person um, deep, deep Delivery. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, um, the person um, uh, highlights, uh, shared a link to, to, with us to a story um, in a... Uh, uh, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island uh, website, go, go local Providence. And it's a legal but unethical uh, Rhode Island restaurant speak out on unauthorized food delivery services. And this is a really, really interesting one. So actually, I want to uh, talk a little bit about this because I, after I read this, I had an idea that I, I want to know if you want to get in on this, Don. So, um, so this is a um, Rhode Island restaurant owners are criticizing food delivery services that have not partnered with, but are posting their menus and delivering their food. Um, so it might be uh, illegal, but it's unethical. Why should some random website make money off my back and the backs of small businesses? Um, someone with the computer have access to my menu. So basically, um, they, you know, if, if you're on like uh, Grubhub or Uber Eats, and a business opts in, but there are other types of businesses out there that um, you can just like basically set up a website and um, and and, and like someone could go there, uh, 
pick out what you want on the menu, and then this person who's a third party will go order it from you for you and deliver it to you. Um, and so there's like not you know a whole bunch of like old menus, fake picks uh, about what uh, you know what's going on, and and one of the ones is Postmates um, that uh, that that pops up uh, sort of over and over again. So the pricing's incorrect. It's got like someone is inflating the prices, but it brings up this whole other conversation about like food intermediaries and what other things like are they buying a bunch of food at, at a restaurant X and then. Um, you know, through this order and then maybe taking a while to deliver it. Are they substituting foods? I've seen that in a couple of uh, different things where it's like they're ordering something, someone orders to the website, but it's not coming from the, from the restaurant that they order it from because the person who runs this third party um, service can get it cheaper somewhere else. Um, and it, see, that seems to pop up a lot with like rice dishes that might come from, uh, you know, something that's, that's more of a commodity uh, that might come from two or three different spots. Um, and, and are they like keeping this food on hand? So it's like, Oh, I bought a bunch of rice earlier in the day and now I'm transporting it. There becomes a lot of um, uh, food safety questions questions. This, this article made me think about some other type of food service systems, though, that are out there. And there's like a share my lunch kind of app. Have you heard of this thing? I have not. Okay. So let me think, let me see if I can find it. I think it's called share my lunch or um, eat my lunch. Stop <laughs> share my lunch. Eat, eat my lunch. Um, so you, so you basically, um, Eat my are, lunch. Buy one, give one. No, that's buy, that, is that what it is? New Zealand? I think that's what it is. Oh, oh, maybe I'm not thinking of it. No, no, no. That's, this seems like reputable. Basically, um, I will see if I can find it um, for our show notes. But um, so, so the idea is people that work like in downtown cores or in business parks will – um, sign up for a service that says, okay, you want a hot, you want to eat some hot lunch every day or want something different. Um, every, once, you know, let's get five people together and one day a week, you'll be responsible for making the lunch and then dropping it off to everybody. And then the other four days, you are the receiver of the lunch. So you see, so it's not a, um, it's like a Tinder for, for lunches, I guess, <laughs> where it's like a matchmaking and you can click off like, you know, I don't like eggs and mayonnaise, so it matches you up with people that don't also don't like those things, and you're more likely to to eat, you know, so you're you're gonna receive something that, that you that you do like. So what I wanna know, Don, is I kinda wanna I'll, again I'll I'll see if I can find the actual um name of this. Um but I want I actually wanna sign up for one of these and then see what kind of like information if i ask questions about it they give me um all i'm happy to make a lunch and share it with others to just to get in on it but i want to know more about the food safety and allergen concerns uh for something like this yeah so, what, I, so i'm doing you a little bit of googling and, and it looks like uh here's an article um from 2015 from business insider uh with meal sharing apps uh, feastly eat with and cook app um, like air that they're described as being Airbnb for meals. Um, you know, th this is, this is a fascinating area. And again, it shows like sort of the cutting edge of food safety. I'm currently serving as the chair of a conference for food protection committee. For those that, that don't know, the CFP is basically the group that meets to help the FDA write the model food code, um, uh, which basically is the model code that states may adopt to regulate uh, local uh, restaurants and grocery stores and things like that. And 
this whole idea of um, both um, uh, meal order meal kits or mail order foods, things like Omaha steaks or Blue Apron, as well as uh, DoorDash or Grubhub or Instacart. You know the, these different uh, food or, or meal delivery services. This is a brave new world of food safety, and to a certain extent, these things are unregulated or they fall within the, the cracks, the regulatory cracks. And so, we as food safety professionals in the regulated industry, in government, in academia, are sort of coming to are not sort of we are coming to grips. We're trying to come to grips with how to regulate these businesses. And it's it's really, it's really interesting. And, and I think we're only going to see more innovation as the innovation continues in the industry. To, to, we're only going to see more examples of how, how do we, how do we make food safe? And that may include regulatory solutions, but it's going to include best practices. We're not writing regulations in this group. We're writing a guidance document that's going to hopefully help. Um, and hopefully that guidance document would also be helpful for you know, whatever these services are that you're talking about, right? Because as I try to explain to people, the bacteria don't care, right? The allergens don't care. They're going to do what they're going to do. And so what we need to do is develop guidance or recommendations for people as to what they need to think about as they get into these businesses so that they don't uh, get sued, so that they they don't kill their customers or injure their customers, right? So we, we want, we want the business, you know, we want small businesses to succeed. That's a great idea, but also we want to do it in a way where people are safe and that they're not, um, uh, eating things that are going to cause an allergic reaction or make them sick from food poisoning. And they're getting what they want, right? If I if I think I'm ordering fried rice from my fam- favorite Chinese restaurant, well, I, I want it to be that fried rice. I don't want fried rice from some other restaurant just because you consider like fried rice to be a commodity that can be swapped out. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Well, and, and this is like a... Um, for us in the food safety world, we're, it's hard for us to stay ahead of this, right? Like there's there for every time that we think about the, um, the risks associated with it, there's, there's five or six other chances for people to share food, move food, sell it on Facebook, um, create, you know, buy, you know, buy a whole bunch of extra stuff, try to reduce food waste, whatever it is. I just linked, um, or sent you a link to something called Olio, um, which is the one that I was thinking about that used to be called something else, apparently, um, where it connects neighbors with each other and local shops. So surplus food and other items can be shared. So it's like leftovers. And if you look at some of the like testimonials on this one, you've got like stuff on, um, uh, you know, I just gave away bread five minutes after listing it. Such a good idea. Every success. I was delighted when Samir appeared at my door to collect a bag of goods left in the house we moved into. A weight off my mind and more floor space, too. Right? Like, so there's... Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> <laughs> I am terrified by this, man. Yeah. So but, so I want to do this. I want to know, okay. like... Okay. We know we should do this. We should. This is reality based research. You can do this. You can be the virtual <laughs> side of this. I want to be the reality side, but I, I really want to know how people are handling this. Um, so anyway, hey, we got a question. We do. Um, that, that came in from uh, from from our, our webinar. The question is for startups. Do you see that food safety might not be their first priority? How do you get them there when providing help to small companies? So this is a great, great question. Yeah, so food safety is probably not their their top priority, and and I and I and the answer is I think that there's a variety of different solutions to this, right? I got a phone call this morning, actually, uh, eight eight o'clock. Uh, I'm just uh, getting out of bed, and the phone rings, and it's a guy who wants to go into the, um, he wants to sell poultry chicken 
and eggs. Uh, I think he thinks he thought poultry chicken was a thing, um, but I think he, what he means is poultry, specifically chicken. Um, and he had no idea how to go about getting into that business. He had an idea that he was going to open up a farm. He had some space where he was going to raise chickens and he was going to raise eggs. And then maybe in the winter months when he's not raising poultry, he wants to raise swine um, and he wants to somehow turn that into food that he's going to sell to people. And this, so this guy had no clue about what he was doing. Um, and of course, the answer is it's long, it's hard, it's technically complex. Um, and so sometimes, I hate to say it, but sometimes the best service that I can provide to people that call me for advice is to is to scare the hell out of them so that they don't go into the food business, right? Because they, they really don't have, I, in my assessment, they don't have what it takes. I've only had a you know 10 minute conversation with the person, but I, I can figure out pretty quickly whether I think that they have what it takes or not, but but that's why we have regulations, right? And so, uh, but but again, with a lot of these new businesses, I, you know, again, I, I served on the previous iteration of this conference for food protection committee, and I, at one point, I asked one of the local health people, "Well, how do you find these businesses that are that are operating that are selling food, you know, out of somebody's home?" And she says, "Well, we just go on Facebook." And I was like, wow, what, what, that's just, I, I've told that story several times and it can still continues to blow me away. Um, so, so to, to come back to the question, how do you get them, um, to, to think about food safety? Honestly, I'm not afraid of telling them horror stories, right? I'm not afraid of telling them about that. They might kill somebody that somebody might die, that they could get sued. Um, and, and then hopefully they'll do the right thing and they'll get the education they need. Um, and they'll, they'll be a successful business person or, or not. And, and, They'll, they'll, they'll decide that maybe there's another way to, to, to earn a living. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And the thing that I would add to that is that um, people, I think when you start talking about business risk, they stay pretty engaged, right? Like we, they may not have thought about this before and to the, um, to the questioners, we'll call, we'll call that a deep startup. Um, uh, the, they may not have uh, thought so much about food safety. They're definitely thinking about regulatory stuff, but it is a jumble of like, who's going to regulate what I do? Where do I start? Is this a state entity? Is it a, where am I going to, you know, ship my stuff? Is it going to, where the federal rules going to come in? Um, and, and, and there are, but when we start getting into like, um, sharing, this could really take your entire business away, shut, shut you down. You have this great idea, but this could get in the way of, of what you want to do. Um, and, and your product will make it on the, on the market. And then it all evaporates because you, you know, you've led to, um, you know, even just a recall, right? Like the, like doesn't even, uh, if, if they're not prepared with some sort of process to handle and manage a recall, um, whether that's with insurance or being able to, answer the phone for some, from some of their suppliers on, okay, we're removing this product from, um, from the uh, market. How are you going to help us handle it, get it off the market? Um, those, those buyers may not even go back to them. Um, and so, so I agree. I think, you know, maybe, um, you know, just highlighting the magnitude of what could go wrong um, really pushes people in, uh, in the direction of being able to, to manage that. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we have another question, um, and, and this is one like that was asked of us, but I'm not sure that we have the capacity to answer. So maybe somebody from, from AFI can jump in and answer it, but I'll, I'll read the question. It says, if a company incorporates the recommendations of the AFI food safety site, will they be compliant with FDA and USDA regulations? What GFSI recognized, uh, what about a GFSI recognized? 
recognized certification program? Will recommendations be in line with those requirements? And I, I, I don't know enough about GFSI to offer an opinion. And my, my sense is that the, the information that AFI is developing is kind of, it's kind of generic, uh, right? Uh, and it's, it's, it's really about best practices. It's not, you, you, you need to do more, like, this is, this is like the next level after you're already compliant with, with whatever FDA or USDA regulations are, and you want to take it to the next level. I think that's when you would implement the AFI food safety stuff. It's not, it's not like you're going to do this instead of the regulations. It's just, this is, this is things to think about on top of the regulations to move the bar even further in terms of food safety. Boom. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think this is where when you start thinking about things like food safety culture, um, as, as Afi's highlighted here, and you start thinking about building a sanitation team, this is a, this is above and beyond that, um, what you need to be in, in compliance. But if you're doing this, if you're following all these recommendations, um, you're, you're hitting all those best practices. It's, you know, none of these things are going to guarantee that you don't have an illness or a recall or anything like that. But man, if you're doing, if you're hitting all these hundred recommendations, you are, uh, um, you've got to be in the top one or 2% of the people that are making food out there. So, so let me ask you uh, a follow-up question. Um, uh, if you had a new food safety program and you had to implement some of AFI's recommendations, what would you prioritize? What would be the most important to start with? Hmm. So I, I think that um, I would start with um, really looking at what, like, am, am I starting with a new facility? Am I starting with an old facility? And if I'm starting with an old facility, I'm, I'm starting with any of the, like, high, uh, the design questions. Uh, am I fitting the best practices here when it comes to hygienic equipment design, hygienic floor design, hygienic facility design? So I want to start with, like, what do, what am I looking at, right? And if I'm, and if it's new and I'm, like, building something, here then i'm starting with these pieces do i have all the right facility uh best practices to um uh to get me to where i can implement the best sanitation the best environmental monitoring um and and focus on um things around um uh management uh questions personnel that that kind of stuff the next thing that I would focus on, and Don, I don't know if this is where you would go, but I'm really, really concerned about my preventive process control validation. Like, like if what I'm doing, I need to know that what I'm what I'm making, I am controlling everything that I can control um, within um, uh, what, that's what's expected to me from the from the regulatory side and protecting my business. So I'm start, I'm starting facility and then I'm looking at what it is am I doing in my process and then letting everything else fall out after that. But but I don't like I again, before I let you talk <laughs> on this, I don't stop there. Like all of these things become so important in this integrated program. Um so it's not like oh if I get to my um uh, preventive process control validation, then it's like, oh, okay, I'll figure out my, you know, personal hygiene and personnel stuff two or three years down the road. Like I've got to be working on this stuff concurrently. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I agree with the way that you prioritize. I mean, I think process validation, especially, I mean, process validation is going to keep you out of trouble with the regulatory agencies because the process is basically what you think you're doing to control risk, but the process validation says, 
is it really controlling the risk that I think it's controlling? And that's just so important these days as we move towards risk-based preventive controls and uh, and FISMA Food Safety Modernization Act and all of those things is is fine. Yeah, and, but it, but again, you can't you don't stress there. You keep you keep moving and you keep looking at other things and you just you know you just keep keep uh, you know moving through it piece by piece. Absolutely. Hey, so I know that you and I talked about not having a hard out. I just received a text from my wife. This is in real time follow up, um, asking if I could maybe go pick up my kid at three forty five. So I do have a bit of a hard out. Um, and well, that, and, uh, and the- I, I also committed to uh, to a phone call with a graduate student um, at three thirty. So I also have a hard out. Um, so and it's okay. We've been talking a nice long time. I think we gave uh, gave Affy a good value for money. Um, and Donna is agreeing with us in the in the text uh, super secret text channel, um, and so yeah, I think uh, I think that's a show. So, so yeah. So Ben, can you play us out? Oh my gosh, I was I was so ready to do this a second ago. Okay, let's <laughs> see how this works. Oh. I'm gonna fade it too. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. All right, uh, guys. Ben, Don, thank you so much. Thanks for the listeners joining us today. And um, we will make this available for all attendees. And I believe y'all are posting it on your normal um, podcast site as well, correct? Yeah, we'll we'll post the audio uh, without the screen sharing uh, on the regular site as a regular podcast.